I'm coming today with a conversation with Michael Iglesias, who is the co-founder and the head of engineering at Lightbeam Financial, uh, which is a legal tech venture working on developing a wealth management and asset protection platform. So there's a lot there, um, and I, I'd love to kind of understand maybe what's your uh, brief summary of exactly Lightbeam is doing. Well, good morning, Michael. Brian, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you again as well. Yeah, Brian. Uh, so thank you for having me on. And at a quick glance, uh, Lightbeam Financial sort of started last year during the pandemic when I was researching ways to lower my tax liabilities. At that point in time, I was still a resident of California living and working in San Francisco and getting ready for the election cycle. I was worried about that proposed wealth tax that California was trying to pass. And so I wanted to find a way to essentially get my crypto assets off of my balance sheet. So they wouldn't be subject to what I term a predatory wealth tax um, in, in my eyes and in the eyes of many others. And I came across uh, these legal instruments known as domestic asset protection trusts. And so it's a legal way for you to essentially transfer legal ownership of your assets into a trust, but still hold on to equitable title. Meaning that you know, I'm sure you've heard of that popular mantra, control everything, own nothing. Or I think I got that. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm somewhat familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, control is more legally powerful than ownership, and I guess not necessarily equivalently powerful, but much less vulnerable. Correct, correct. And so, yeah, long story short, I was going through the process of setting up one of these trusts for myself and realized that they were being uh, grossly overpriced by existing attorneys and that a lot of it can be automated. So, Lightbeam Financial is almost like a uh, legal Zoom. Uh, for just the very niche area of estate planning and wealth management. Cool. So, you know, it's we provide a platform where you can, you know, go ahead and select the type of trust instrument you wish to provision. We provide you with a template. You can, you know, fill it out online using our platform. And then from there, we transition more into trust administration, which, again, was, you know, was one of the big pieces right after you establish one of these trusts. And it's, there's a huge void in the market right now where, you know, it's almost like these attorneys are tossing over, you know, a hot potato over the fence. And then it's sort of left to you to sort of determine, well, hey, how do I administer the trust? How do I fund the trust with my assets that I want to shelter? Uh, so on and so forth. Um, I'm looking forward to digging into some of the kind of motivations behind this and your path to kind of how you got there. And also some of the kind of uh, philosophical foundations that, that have made you feel that this is like a calling, an area that you really want to focus in on. But first, I'd love to dig in a little bit more into the nitty gritty of this. So I think that a lot of people, um, including myself, I'm only recently familiar with like the concept of a trust. So I was, let's, like, I was wondering if we could start sort of from basics and fundamentals about what these sort of legal institutions are uh, and what role they have uh, served or uh, to the extent that you're kind of aware of that. Um, so what is a trust? Correct. Yeah. So, so at a, at a high level, right. And I'm sure everybody here is, you know, has come across the words, you know, trust or wills, um, but there are estate planning tools and there's a variety of different trusts. So there's typically the revocable living trust, right. Which is, uh, you know, your parents might have one, right. Where they're, um, you know, essentially, you know, placing, you know, their assets into the trust and, you know, instructions on so what happens, um, you know, after their death. Um, and again, I'm not an estate planning attorney, so, you know, I, I think uh, an attorney would probably be the better person to ask these specific questions to, but in regards to what we're doing, 
um, and working with a very niche area of within the trust law is, you know, self-settled spendthrift trusts. Um, and so these are irrevocable trusts where, you know, they're essentially immutable, um, quote unquote. You transfer your trust, your assets into the trust. And by doing so, you're transferring legal ownership of the assets, right? So if I have a brokerage account or, you know, a savings account, so on and so forth, those accounts are under my name. The idea is for you to transfer ownership of those accounts, right? Or those, you know, brokerage accounts in this um, situation into the trust, but still hold on to equitable title. So typically each trust instrument will have three personas, so to speak. So you have the grantor or the settler of the trust, right? Which is the individual who's creating the trust instrument. Presumably putting stuff into the trust. is Correct. That yes. Okay. Correct. Yes. So the settler or the grantor of the trust is the person funding and creating the trust. Then you have the trustee, which is, has the fiduciary responsibility to manage those trust assets on behalf of the beneficiaries, right? So that's the third persona. So you have, you have settler trustees, and the beneficiaries. The beneficiaries uh, typically in most cases will be your children, grandchildren, so on and so forth. With these self-settled spendthrift trusts, depending on which attorney you ask, um, you're able to sort of fill the role of all three personas, right? So you yourself, Brian, you'll go ahead and create one of these trusts. So you'll be the grantor of the trust. And let's say for this hypothetical conversation, um, you transfer one Bitcoin right into that trust or you fund the trust with one Bitcoin. Now in some states like Nevada, Wyoming, South Dakota and others, you are allowed to establish your own private trust company to serve as the trustee, right? And like I mentioned just briefly ago, the trustee has a fiduciary responsibility to manage, manage those trust assets on behalf of the beneficiary, right? Again, with these types of asset protection trusts, you yourself can also be a beneficiary of that trust. Right. So you essentially don't necessarily lose total control of the assets, um, but you're still able to benefit from the equitable title of those assets. So you can still make distributions to yourself, so on and so forth. Um, again, you know, I'm not an attorney and this is not legal advice, um, but there's very there's a lot of nuances in how you can structure these types of legal contracts. And so I think I've glossed over at a high level sort of the three main you know, keys or the three main points. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, small little tweaks that you can do to strengthen, I guess, the efficacy of these legal constructs. And so the general idea though, is that when I was doing my research, you know, this is how, you know, the 1% or the uber wealthy, right. Manage their financial affairs, right. You know, for, for them, you know, in, in, you know, in the shoes of a high net worth, uh, or excuse me, high net worth individual, um, it's about, you know, minimizing their tax liabilities um, and setting up a plan to transfer that wealth, right, to future generations of their bill of mine. And yeah. so one of the ways that they're doing this is using, you know, these very sophisticated trust instruments. And then, you know, asset protection, I guess, in general, has a negative connotation for some reason, you know, dating back to maybe like the Panama Papers, right, where you had, you know, these, I guess, infamous law firms that were setting up these offshore, you know, I guess, legal entities, right, in these low tax jurisdictions, whether it be Panama, you know, the Cayman Islands, um, you know, I think there's some of the Greek islands, so on and so forth. Um, but in reality, 
Um, it's actually, you know, part of estate planning, right? I mean, you, you always want to protect your wealth. I mean, everyone spends a lifetime trying to accumulate that wealth, right? And accumulate assets or income producing assets. Why not try to protect those assets, right? And when I say protection, I mean protection from, you know, from frivolous lawsuits, um, from creditors, so on and so forth, um, you know, from, you know, liabilities that, uh, I guess aren't, uh, I guess aren't, you know, see, you're not able to see from, you know, I guess the naked eye. Um, so this is like, if you're a real estate investor and you have residential, um, properties, right. If somebody slips and falls, um, you know, on one of your properties, uh, again, the, you know, you are subject to, you know, to some type of lawsuit, mm-hmm. um, and being able to make sure that you're protecting those investments, right? Whether it be through insurance or whatnot, but also protecting outside investments, right? So you want to limit the blast radius. You don't want, you know, a tenant who falls on one property, right? To now be able to go after your entire real estate portfolio. Let's dive a little bit more. So I just want to like share my understanding and kind of recapitulate some of the architecture we've talked about so far. And uh, I guess for context, um, I've also been learning a little bit about trusts and other sort of uh, estate planning tools because um, I've been dealing with uh, my aging father who is, uh, you know, doesn't have a tremendous amount of assets, but we've uh, been digging in, my my family and I have been digging into the research and sort of finding out uh, what the law supports in terms of how to protect those assets and what are the different sort of uh, risks and opportunities associated with different strategies. Um, so I recently had a conversation with a lawyer about trusts, and uh, one thing that was highlighted to me, at least in the state of North Carolina, is that um, it is legally uh, not allowed for the same party to be to fill all three roles in this triangle of mm-hmm. uh, grantor, uh, trustee, and beneficiary. Um, and mm-hmm. it's specifically uh, the the lawyer that we were speaking with highlighted. Um, the, the sort of intention behind the design of a trust as really being um, like the idea of the grantor and the, and the trustee being the same person is really like legally antithetical to the original design of the trust. Um, and so that, was, that was like news to me. Um, and uh, I guess one thing that I've kind of understood, understood uh, through our previous conversation was that this is highly variable from state to state as to what uh, legal models are supported. Um, And kind of second, I'm curious whether, if you're aware, whether the legal model that you're talking about has been really tested. Has it been tested in courts? Um, Has it butt up against an aggressive IRS, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so, so Brian, you bring up a great point, right? And so like the traditional trust Right. Is where the grantor, the settler like yourself, um, you know, essentially transfers a title to some asset to a third party. Right. And that third party now has that fiduciary responsibility to manage that asset or assets on behalf and for the benefit of the beneficiary of the trust. Right. So in the situation like, you know, where your father, um, you know, would have those assets. Right. Um, be held by the trustee. Um for the benefit of, you know, let's say his heirs, right? So, you know, yourself and your siblings. Um, now you're totally correct where, you know, one individual serving all three of those roles, right? Or those personas, the settler, the trustee and beneficiary. Yes, by trust, by statute um, isn't allowed in, in most states, right? Um, now in Nevada, Wyoming and others, um, 
they allow you to create a private trust company, right? And so typically you would have to procure the services of a public trust company, right? And these, you know, there's several out there. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of actually banking or financial institutions have um, sort of like a, a public trust uh, company arm of sorts. And so in, let's say, Nevada or Wyoming, you can create your own private trust company, right? And so what you can do is you can have that private tr trust company serve as trustee to your trust. So you individually, right, aren't in that, you know, serving that capacity, right? It's a, it's a business and it's a superset of a limited liability company, but it's a separate entity from yourself. Um, now, there's different models, right? And I said that, you know, there was a lot of nuances. And so I think this varies um, based on which attorney you talk to, but I will reference, I guess, one prominent attorney in Nevada who created a hybrid DAPT, right? So this is a hybrid domestic asset protection trust. Um, I guess his legal stance is that you go ahead and create one of these self-settled spendthrift trusts, right? You fund the trust with assets. You're also able to go ahead and create a private trust company. But then instead of listing yourself as the beneficiary or the primary beneficiary of that trust, you name your spouse, for instance, right? And so it's a hybrid in the sense where you yourself aren't listed as the primary beneficiary, but it's someone relatively close to you, I would say, right? Being a spouse. And so you can sort of live indirectly through your spouse, right? That trust can make distributions of trust assets to your spouse. Obviously, that would probably benefit you as well, right? Whether it be for, you know, distributions to cover, you know, um, monthly mortgage payments or, you know, healthcare payments, so on and so forth. Um, in some cases, then you would be able to later list yourself as a primary beneficiary as well. Um, but the reason why you typically wouldn't start off as a primary beneficiary is that there is a statute of limitations as it pertains to the assets you're transferring into the trust. Right. And so there's a large area of law, um, you know, talking about like, you know, fraudulent transfers. And so the idea is that, you know, the law is trying to prevent you yourself from going ahead and before a judgment or before, you know, you know, if you have outstanding creditors and you're trying to defraud them, um, they're trying to avoid that situation where you just transfer assets into a trust, right? Which is essentially a different entity in the eyes of the law. Um, and then essentially wipe away all of your liabilities, right? Or your responsibilities as a, um, you know, as, as a debtor. Or all of your assets are gone, so you can't pay back creditors. Right, right. right. So, yeah. so, and in that situation, right, so these instruments are actually very ineffective um, if you're trying to pursue such strategy because any attorney on behalf of the creditor will be able to roll back these transfers of assets on the grounds that they were fraudulent in nature, right? Um, so it, it's, this is not a strategy to protect yourself against creditors um, or bankruptcy. Um, this is merely a strategy to protect your assets from, like I said, predatory tax authorities, um, you know, which, which yeah, I think the California tax authority is, is quite predatory, I think. Um, and frivolous lawsuits, you know, so on, and other, you know, outside or external liabilities that may arise. Um, sure. And to lower your, um, y you know, your estate taxes, right? Um, and transfer wealth to, you know, like I said, like your children or grandchildren. Um, 
Let's let's dig in a little bit into the uh, uh, into the kind of role of taxation, and I guess your views on taxation. Is that is that is that a, a good segue? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, taxes. Look, I, I think we've had discussions about this before. Uh, I'm all for um, you know paying your fair share of taxes. However, I don't necessarily agree with a private citizen who is employed in the private sector essentially working, you know, up to 50% of the year um, on behalf of the government, right? And so, and you see a lot of that in California, right, where, um, you know, high-income earners in the state of California um, are at times taxed up to 50% of their gross income, which which is kind of crazy, right? Because, you know, essentially you're working 50% of the time for the government. And I think I mean, a lot of people specifically, would you're talking about uh, California's uh, income tax uh, in correct. addition to the uh, federal. Right? Yeah, correct. And so, then the maximum rate is something like 13 percent or perhaps. Yeah, yeah, it's thir- 13 and 13 and change. Um, yeah. yeah. So you get pretty close up to that 50 percent mark. Um, right. Like I said, working for a private enterprise. Well, let's let's distinguish uh, the, I guess, income from labor versus income from equity, because I think at the vast majority of uh, income or earnings or wealth uh, for those people in that highest class is probably not being derived from labor. That would be my presumption. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes, that's that's a fair assessment. Um, and, and yes, so I guess we're talking about active income um, or you know employed income, I guess, which. You know, I think there. I believe there's four quadrants of different types of income, and earned income is is the worst um, from a tax standpoint. The stuff uh, that gets on your W two or your ten ninety nine, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whether you're a W two hourly or W two employee or, like you said, ten ninety nine, um, th- that income again, it, it's it's subject to uh, to FICA taxes, right? So that's Social Security, Medicare, um, and it's subject to you know. A lot of other taxes. Again, I'm, I'm no tax expert here, but um, yeah, it, it is the worst. And so, um, for and like maybe the other big category, just to kind of highlight and flesh it out, I guess would be um, capital gains, like the, the other, Correct. yeah, the basically the the growth of assets um, uh, that that you own. So if you own a if you own a house and you sold the house, then you'd be looking back at the price that you purchased the house for. Um, and you, that'd be what's called, I think your basis, uh, your cost basis, your cost basis. And then, yeah. And then you'd be looking at the price that you sell the house for. And the difference between there, uh, would be considered your capital gains. And, um, from what I understand, again, I think neither of us are lawyers, but we can just outline some of this terminology for listeners, uh, long-term capital gains and short-term capital gains. Um, if you've held the asset for a very short period of time, and I think it's six months or less, uh, then that is regarded as short-term capital gains. Um, and any longer than that is long-term capital gains. And I uh, asterisk in the exact time there, I would need to look that up. But yeah, I think I think it might be a year, but again, we're, we're, you know, we're no experts in, in these matters. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I think capital gains tax, I think, um, you know, the lowest it goes for long-term, I think is 10%. Um, it's like usually 10 to 20%. But, but yeah, and then you also have like sort of passive income, right? So this is um, for individuals who, have you know invested in residential real estate um, or even commercial real estate? So yeah, we have long-term and short-term capital gains. Um, then we have also you know income derived from passive revenue streams or, or investments, right? That can be real estate. Um, it can be a, a wide array of, of different business ventures, right? Where you are a you know passive investor, or limited partner. But but yeah, so from a taxation standpoint, um, 
and, and and just to like you know the example that you gave right where you know you 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 just sold um you know a piece of real estate and now you would incur a capital gains tax a lot of what we're trying to sort of do is democratize access to you know the more sophisticated financial knowledge so in 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 this situation you could take advantage of a um 1031 exchange, I believe it's called, or a 1030 exchange, um, where you'd be able to defer those um, those gains um, if you roll over right that that you know that that principle into the purchase of another property. Um, gotcha. So it's a 1030 exchange. I, I don't know what I, I, I said before, um, but um, but again, like you know, not everybody knows this, and you know, financial literacy in general is, I think, quite low. Um, in the United States and, and, and might be the same in other countries. Um, I know that you've lived abroad and so maybe you have some thoughts on, on that. Um, but I, I think, you know, the lack of financial literacy, I think does contribute substantially to the inequality that I think. Yeah, I think we definitely agree there. And I, in fact, last night I just read a uh, the ProPublica expose on um, Peter Thiel's use of Roth IRA uh, to invest in PayPal. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So uh, this was, uh, you know, basically the use of um, funds that were tax protected. You you pay the tax upfront, and then they go into the tax protected zone of an IRA. And he um, was awarded a founder's share for uh, one tenth of a penny per, per share price uh, in PayPal. Um, and obviously PayPal grew quite large, uh, and the result of using his IRA funds for this was that all gains associated with that were tax protected. And the, you know, I think he set a record for the size of the, of the Roth IRA, something like 5 billion, uh, five value of 5 billion. So we're dealing with like basically the use of a tax minimization or a wealth preservation or whatever you want to say, like whatever the Roth program is for was intended for people to like basically be able to put money aside and have that money be tax protected. Um, and, and basically the very, very sophisticated use of such legal mechanisms by people who are extremely high wealth or extremely sort of well, well poised kind of take advantage of all the sort of, uh, chinks in the armor of the system. Um, and so to zoom out a little bit, like, I think that no one likes paying taxes, right? No one like, you know, maybe some people take a, take a pleasure in it and feel like they're doing their part, but also, especially given, given a world in which we see our tax dollars being used for things like uh, wars in Afghanistan, lots of uh, potential social programs that we feel are not designed in ways that are, uh, that align with our understanding of how, how social programs should be designed, et cetera. I think that it's understandable that there's some degree of antagonism towards being taxed and this feeling of it being like wasteful. I'm curious, like, what is the ideal rate? What do you think the ideal setup would be from your from your sort of starting points? Um, how do you think tax should work? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. I don't know if I have, you know, a solution to that. I, I would probably lean towards some types of, you know, some type of flat uh, flat tax rate. But I guess the idea is, you know, I guess whatever marginal or effective rate that doesn't lead individuals to be less productive. Right. Because I, I think that's the big thing that a lot of people just, you know, maybe glance over, right. Is that when you start being taxed at these outrageous rates, right. Those productive members of society might be less inclined, 
right, to be as productive because you know they're they're being taxed, you know, you know, fifty cents for every dollar they earn. They might right. at that point start to subjectively value, you know, time off, right, or vacationing or spending time with their family and not working more than trying to go out and earn that additional dollar, which in reality is much less when you know, after paying taxes. In a world where their earned income is not coming from labor at all, like how does that, how does that argument work? Like for instance, if we're talking about the source of this income being primarily passive ownership of things, very little of it is actually related to earned income. Like for instance, if one's wealth comes from investing early in Bitcoin, like allowing Bitcoin to accumulate is not a productive behavior. All that is, is owning an appreciating asset. Similar with like a real estate, you know, like uh, just owning a house is not a productive behavior. It's not as if that that's labor related. Um, so I'm, I'm curious whether or not the kind of like exploration of somebody's incentives to work at the margin, like oftentimes the people, especially at the highest wealth brackets, aren't working. And some of them are, sure, some of them are. Like, I, I, I'll grant you that. But I think a lot of people um, are, are sort of reaching for a position in which they have the option to not work. Um, and that's sort of one of the goals of wealth accumulation. So I would, I would argue that in this situation, right, you have like, you know, society's most, you know, wealthy individuals like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and others, right, that are borrowing against their equity holdings, at their respective companies, right? And they, I, I think there's an article in the New York Times or it might've been Forbes where their effective tax rate is like somewhere near 1%. Uh, I would say that, or I would argue that when you have these individuals, right? These serial entrepreneurs, right? In a position where they can go ahead and, and deploy their capital, right? Into different ventures that will go ahead and, you know, subsequently, you know, turn into employment, right? For others, right? They're job creating serial entrepreneurs. I think the more capital that they have at their disposal, right? And that's not being taxed. I think the better off society as a whole would be, right? Because they're able to essentially deploy their capital to be more productive um, than, you know, let's say, you know, a, a bureaucrat, right? Who has, you know, a whole wide array of different incentives, right? That don't really align with the general public. Why would Elon Musk's and uh, Jeff Bezos's incentives be more aligned with the general public than somebody who is democratically elected? Yeah, I would say that th this stems to like maybe Adam Smith and Visible Hand Theory, right? Where these respective individuals pursuing their own self-interest um, naturally benefits society as a whole. Right, because they're pushing the productivity frontier further outward, right? They're leading to higher rates of economic output. And so I think naturally the quality of life for everyone um, improves, right? Whereas if you start to tax these individuals, right, they're less inclined to innovate, less inclined to start businesses and be entrepreneurial, um, in which case, right, economic output doesn't grow at the rate it could be. Right. So you have a substantial you know, opportunity cost there. Um, and then I think it just stems to the fact that you have we all have you know, we have limited resources. Right. And it's all about allocating our, those resources to their most productive use cases. I am in favor that governments necessarily aren't the best, um, you know, or isn't the best institution um, in allocating resources to their most productive use cases. I think the private sector is. 
Um, and I think that's why, you know, I'm pro free market and, um, you know, in general, I, I think government should only tax right to the extent um, where we can provide, you know, different public resources and, and infrastructure, right? What's an example of the kind of stuff do you think the governments are good at spending money on? Or maybe is like things that are sort of appropriate to reserve for public expenditure versus private expenditure? Yeah, I think I think anything that has to do with, you know, um, infrastructure, right? So the, this is, you know, you know, schools, uh, you know, roads, so on and so forth. Um, any, any means of transportation, um, I would say, you know, healthcare, I, I think that's a sensitive subject. I don't know if, um, I, I think a private healthcare system would probably be better in the long run. Um, you know, maybe with some government oversight or regulation, um, but I think like, you know, raising money to power our judicial system, um, our legislative system, so on and so forth. I mean, we're always going to need to have armed forces and, you know, there's always going to have, there's always going to be a role for government. I think it's just a matter of trying to limit, you know, that role, right. To what's essentially, you know, deemed most important. Right. And I think that would be, you know, first off security, it would be stability, right. And promoting education. That's a relatively, I think, even in the um, more radical libertarian world, like the need of collective security is like still pretty paramount. Right. Like that's that's recognized as like a core function of 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 government. I think that there's there's ongoing debate about the use of public funds for education. For instance, we have the uh, charter school movement and the uh, the sort of uh, the uh, is it the voucher system that was proposed under George W. Basically, ability to kind of like uh, take funds out of the public school system and then put them into private systems uh, because of lack of faith in the public public schooling. Um, and I'm sympathetic to his claims about the the perils of public schooling. Like uh, I'll put a footnote there. Um, I think healthcare is another interesting one. Um, uh, like, like if we just look at the last year, the deployment of the vaccines, I think has been uh, very, very dependent on public expenditure. And I, I would feel like probably most people would be in favor of uh, having that be a public expense, given the fact that these are enjoy. These are, this is something that like needed to be, uh, we need everyone to do it in order to like, uh, in order for it to be effective. And, you know, and roads, although there are countries that have privatized road systems, and of course there are still privatized road systems or privatized sort of infrastructure systems in the United States. But let's let's just stop on defense in particular, because I think that's really interesting. Uh, you and I have previously talked about, like, uh, about China and the like, United States' sort of role in the world as, and, and especially I think is kind of multipolar future that we're talking about. Um, defense is really expensive. Like, and defense in the United States is like, uh, uh, you know, we have the largest military uh, expenditure as a uh, as at least a, an overall as an overall number of any country, you know, by some incredible margin, I think five times the nearest second second player. Um, and a, but I think that uh, the role of that and this is something in my views of all has evolved on over time. It's like I was like I used to th- see that as straight up waste um, and straight up over expenditure. And I was comparing like the role of the United States to the role of any other random country. Um, but I think I've realized that like, actually the United States is kind of funding the defense of Europe, 
of East Asia. Um, it is basically footing, footing the defense bill for the entire um, American sphere of influence, uh, not just like America's borders and America's sort of like uh, sort of like short term, like localized interests. Um, but I, I would imagine that like a stable uh, tax system, what this sort of nuclear umbrella and what this defense umbrella has given the United States and given United States businesses is an incredible latitude of, of space, both within the United States and with the United States allies to make money and be profitable. Like it, it, it would seem to me that like Amazon, uh, Amazon is very much dependent and Elon Musk is very much dependent on the stability of these systems to um, basically the laying down of like a common system of, of law, a common system of like uh, of judiciary to some to some degree of like all of the the roles that the government has played in basically making it safe to operate for entrepreneurs, and that seems like it's probably expensive. And yet, like their companies like keep all of their ca like massive cash holdings in Ireland. Um, I find that to be inconsistent. I find that to be really frustrating. I feel like they're not paying their fair share for the for what they've enjoyed. Oh, and and, and I totally agree with you there. Um, and I think. You know, when President Trump passed the um, Tax Cut and Jobs Act at the end of 2017 and lowered the corporate tax rate to 21 percent, I think part of the motivation behind that was to bring back a lot of those capital resources onshore. Um, you mentioned, you know, Ireland being an offshore tax haven for large enterprises. And, you know, there's there's other islands out there. Panama and Cayman Islands. Switzerland. I mean, there's there's plenty of, of you know, offshore, you know, low tax jurisdictions. Um, but I, I definitely agree with you where Amazon, you know, Apple and all of these other big tech companies and, there, and it's not exclusive to big tech aren't necessarily paying their fair share, um, especially when, you know, we give them quite a substantial amount of preferential tax treatment. Right. Where. When I remember when Amazon was looking for, you know, their second headquarters, right, you had every pretty much every major metropolitan city in the United States ready to extend very, very, you know, you know lucrative, uh, I guess, tax incentives to relocate. Um, you know, the idea, though, that I guess, you know, how do we handle that situation where, you know, they're essentially moving money offshore? I, I don't know. Um but I guess to your to your original point, I, I'm in total agreement where, you know, a lot of these companies aren't taking, um, you know, their role in, in paying their fair share of taxes um, while still benefiting um, of sort of, you know, I, I guess, you know, the U.S.'s foreign policy and role as, I guess, like a world sheriff um, or, you know, maybe like I guess Richard Haas uh, coined it a little differently, where I think uh, the name of one of his books is Reluctant Sheriff. And I think we're always going to sort of probably fill that role, right? Where we're, you know, providing, you know, security, not only within our borders, but within, you know, the, you know, European Union, you know, South Korea, you know, Taiwan, um, and all, you know, essentially all over the world. Right. Um, and I think, like you said, that that's very expensive. Um, sometimes, you know, it may not make sense for us to have a presence in some of these countries, like, you know, some would argue, um, you know, that being the case in Afghanistan. Um, so, so yeah, I guess when it, when it stems back to, you know, the conversation about taxes, again, I think we, we definitely need to pay taxes, um, whether, you know, you're 
a natural person or non-natural persons, right, being business entities, uh, because we have to fund, right, all of these different endeavors um, that makes our government function um, at full capacity and allows us to be, you know, sort of, like I said earlier, this world sheriff, right? It's a challenge there because I, I think that when we look at the behavior of the large companies that manage to basically use legal mechanisms, all legal, like the, the means by which these companies avoid tax are not illegal. It's uh, yeah, it's all legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all legal, right? It's just a, a full and very, very uh, robust uh, exploitation of existing legal infrastructure to achieve their objectives of tax minimization. Like that seems to be, and that's something that we acknowledge may not be constructive to the greater, to the greater project of like, uh, of the United States or whatever. Is the same thing not also true for when private individuals do this? Is the same thing not also true when Peter Thiel does this through his IRA? Like, should is the same thing not also true when we're taking advantage of these like trust trust architectures that we're talking about here? Like, I guess isn't it the same thing? Just one's a corporate entity, one's a natural person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think again, th- this you're definitely right. I mean, it is very similar. I would say though that right now you know, the number of private citizens, right, that are leveraging these very sophisticated, you know, tax planning strategies is relatively small, right? Because naturally, these individuals don't have the capital resources to be able to procure, you know, an army of tax attorneys, financial advisors, CPAs, so on and so forth. Uh, So I I would say the problem really isn't as, I guess, large or systemic, um, amongst right those outside of the 1%. The idea behind, you know, what we're doing at Lightbeam Financial is to sort of democratize access, right, to those sophisticated legal strategies with the idea that those tax savings incurred by, you know, those outside of the 1% um, would be able to be deployed elsewhere, right? And again, going back to, you know, the more productive use case of capital. So, you know, the idea for me was, let me lo- try to lower my legally lower my tax liabilities, right? So I have capital to invest, right? And whether that's in real estate or you know it can be crypto, it can be equities, so on and so forth. But I'm investing that capital, and in my mind, I'm deploying that capital in a much more productive um, you know, scenario than you know some bureau- bureaucrat would. Um, I-, I think you know maybe the promulgation of these legal strategies um, being adopted by those outside of the 1% and those, you know, fortune 500 companies, um, I I think is maybe this does lead to, you know, systemic uh, changes in our tax code where, you know, maybe we can grossly simplify it because our tax code right now is over a hundred thousand pages. You know, so so no one person is going to be able to read that. Um, you know, throughout his or her lifetime, I would hope. Um, but I think simplifying the tax code, right, where, you know, we make it economical, right, for these companies to keep this money onshore, right, because they are expending resources and having to hire these teams of tax attorneys and CPAs to move that money offshore. And somehow it's cost effective. It's, it's cost effective for them to hire an army of lawyers paid $400 an hour. Uh, to help them uh, take advantage of these structures um, rather than just pay their tax. I think think we just need to render the economics ineffective then, right? Um, You know, so we can keep that money on shore, we can tax it at a reasonable rate, 
and you know increase our gross tax receipts um, that could then be used to fund you know defense, education, you know public infrastructure, and you know and, and so on. But I, I think you know I guess there's there's always going to be a happy medium. Um, this doesn't really benefit those that are currently employed, right? in this financial services industry, right? And, and, you know, tax planning being that industry vertical, you know, I, I highly doubt that, you know, some of these big accounting firms like PwC or EY um, aren't going to lobby legislators um, to go ahead and simplify the tax code, right? And to it, for instance, uh, that it's the owner of TurboTax and TurboTax is like, you know, it's a great product, but then, into it uh, on the on the opposite side is uh, lobbies to prevent simplification of the tax code. This is a great example of special interest groups at work, right? right? But doesn't that also apply? For instance, if if your company is basically allowing enabling people to uh, navigate this complex legal space and and you know in the process financially benefiting from uh, assisted navigation through this complexity then if it were to somewhat suddenly become simple, then you don't have a business model anymore. So it puts you in an odd uh, incentive location as well. Cor- correct. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're totally valid on that point. And um, again, maybe, maybe my organization has to start lobbying <laughs> to keep those complex uh, tax, you know, tax statutes or tax codes in place. Um, and, you know, this really it brings up uh, those really good book, uh, the title of his capital or capitalism without capital. Um, and it was actually a book on Bill Gates's um, reading list. And that's how I came across it. But it talks about uh, being able to, you know, lobbying legislators. Right. And that, you know, leading to legislative change being one of the best ways to acquire a sustainable competitive advantage. Right. And if yeah. you start to think about that, right. And you've, you know, you're able to really try to, you know, decompose that into like different, you know, large institutions, right? And try to understand how they've been able to sort of, you know, hold on to, you know, just an incredible business advantage. And I think like companies like Boeing and, you know, others um, are, are prime examples of that. Or even uh, like Tesla uh, with the, oh, yeah, of course. the use of uh, government government subsidies. Uh, and I, I can't remember the exact name of those subsidies, but like that to some degree kept Tesla afloat during its dark times. Yeah. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, I'm, I'm not too familiar with the Tesla story, but those tax credits, they ended up selling those tax credits to other organizations um, for a profit, I would imagine. So, so yeah, Tesla is another good example. Um, and, and you're seeing a lot of these, you know, these, uh, you know, I guess, eco-friendly, um, you know, institutions now being able to raise a lot of capital, I would call this sort of like legislative capture, basically. And this is sort of the uh, the capture of the governmental process by the institutions that they are supposed to be regulating. And I think that we see this everywhere. And I think that actually the story of these tax havens that we're talking about, whether that be Cayman Islands, Switzerland, um, Ireland, et cetera, um, are examples of basically complete legislative capture. The reason that they, are, that they exist is because there is some marginal benefit uh, maybe a much, much lower tax rate, but then even that lower tax rate allows for tax rate arbitrage. So all of the major companies establish their headquarters in these locations. And the only places where they actually recognize profits 
is this offshore account and like it it you know all of amazon supposedly is owned by this holding company in ireland or for apple or vice versa right um, but I think legislative capture, uh, as you're describing it, is sort of corruption. Like it is sort of like, uh, like you know, it's in the United States. Unfortunately, it's often legal forms of corruption, like uh, through the contributions to people's campaigns and that sort of thing. Um, and it's an old game. Um, but is it a game? I guess recognizing that this sort of is the system. That the system is messy. Um, and your your company uh, kind of begins to kind of like uh, have a vested interest in the messiness. How do you think on a personal level, like, does that affect your own perspectives? Like, uh, like, do you think, do you continue to believe that simplification, would you vote for simplified tax structure? Would you like push for it, even if you're in the position of benefiting from the fog, benefiting from the mess? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great question. And I think I would, right? Because if it's not that I think I I know I would, because at the end of the day, I set out to start this venture because I wanted to simplify sort of my tax, you know, liabilities or my tax posture. So it would be, you know, it would be super, you know, it, it'd be unprofessional, right? And the hypocrisy is definitely, you know, apparent if I were to go now and try to lobby legislators and vote, um, you know, against the simplification of our tax code. I think what ends up happening, right, is that people in this situation are, you know, they're acting their self-interest, which is which is natural, right? And so they want to make sure that their business is protected. But I think they're short-sighted in the fact that they don't, I guess, see the opportunity to pivot, right, and, and change along with, you know, those legislative, um, you know, changes. And I think that, again, probably just, you know, it's, I don't know if I have like a clear, that's a really tough question that you posed, Brian. (laughs) It's a very difficult question, honestly, because um, I would like to hear how others would answer that question, right? Others, you know, and and others in, in more prominent roles. All the billionaires, well, not all the billionaires, but a lot of the billionaires claim to want a more simplified tax structure and claim to believe that it's unfair that they pay less of a tax. Their tax rate is lower on on average or overall than the tax rate paid by working class folks. Um, but uh, do they actually put their money where their mouth is? Do they actually like like uh, do they lobby legis- the legislature with said capital to tax that capital higher? Like. I, I'd be surprised. Um, maybe some of them do. Um, I, I guess I guess to, to go back a second, I guess my, my answer to your original question would be um, I would vote to simplify the tax code, right? And then my business would have to pivot, right? And then maybe I pivot into being able to provide a platform um, for individuals to be able to invest in alternative investments maybe, right? Because now they have more capital, um, that they can go ahead and spend, right? You know, they can spend that on, you know, on consumer goods or they can put that capital to work. And I would probably want to capture um, that additional capital um, and be able to facilitate, you know, these individuals to make other investments. So I guess that would be my answer to that. But it's it, it's a very interesting question. I actually, I, I love the question. I think you should, <laughs> you should ask this to a lot of other folks. But again, I think, I think just the question in itself presents right the the complexities and the difficulties 
involved in in trying to instill or promote change, right? That does benefit, you know, the greater number of, you know, members of society. It's just, it, it's such an uphill battle. And, you know, a lot of these, you know, issues, right, are, are, are systemic in nature. They're very complex, mm-hmm. right? And I don't, I don't know if one individual person has the answer to them or, you know, if a think tank, um, you know, based in D.C. or whatnot is going to be able to, you know, formulate a framework to, you know, alleviate some of these issues. I, I don't know. I mean, but I, I just I do know that these are very, very tough challenges. You know, what's sad now is that, you know, we don't tackle these challenges, um, you know, I, I guess in a professional manner. Right. You know, we have these very bipartisan issues or, uh, you know, unpartisan issues. Right. We, we, you know, pretty much like how do we, you know, I guess, improve the quality of life. Um, right. And how do we become more productive? Right. These are these are issues that aren't necessarily about, you know, which, you know, which party um, you represent or, or support. Um, but, yeah, I think right now, like, you know, this climate that we find ourselves in where, you know, one side's pointing to the other side and we're not jointly uh, coming together to try to solve some of these issues. I think that's probably where we should start. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think it is important to note that there are cases where interests diverge, right? Where like basically, and let's just think about, I was just thinking about the metaphor of the, the player versus the game, right? Like the game has been set up such that depending on where somebody is in on the board, so to speak, your local incentives like, or your, your local conditions incentivize certain behaviors. Um, and they can come up with really heavy incentives. Like if you are like wealthy, then the incentive to take advantage of these systems to like protect one's wealth are really big. Like there, and, and there's also a sense that, um, not only is there these, these means to do it, there's hostility towards you as an identity group. There's hostility towards, uh, like, almost resentment towards these, this class of, uh, of folks that, um, like, as you stated, um, the self-images of them as, a, as the most productive members of society. And, like, I'm not sure if I'm completely bought in on that, but I definitely recognize that, like, the people who have bought in to the idea of meritocracy, the people who, like, are really, like, convinced that they can make it in America, often do become like the high income earners and often are the ones that are contributing uh, overwhelmingly disproportionately to like the tax base and the things like that and are simultaneously subject to the ire of people that aren't playing the game that they're playing it. The people who almost like feel like the game is rigged against them. And I'm curious, like when you think about the game as it were, and you being in a position potentially of like, like, okay, you're, you're saying I'm going to act according to my local incentives because the game is, is screwy and uh, to some degree rigged, even if I will vote to change the rules, even if I would vote to change the rules of the game. Um, I'm curious what you think about the, the idea of the game being rigged against certain folks. And again, another, another interesting question. I, I definitely do believe that there are numerous opportunities um, for individuals to succeed in this country. Um, you know, you take a look at, you know, other less developed, um, you know, nations, and it, it is very difficult, right, um, to, you know, go from, you know, rags to riches, right, to, to rise above poverty and, 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 you know, and improve your life, you know, um, you know tenfold, right? 
I, I think here in the United States, we definitely have, I mean, just countless opportunities for an individual to be able to go ahead and, you know, educate themselves and position themselves, right, to be, you know, high-income earners. Um, with that being said, I do think there is a large, um, you know, disparity in fairness, right, where, you know, w- w- we see it, I mean, you know, the, you know, the top you know, top one or three percent maybe of earners, um, you know, have access to resources that you know the other ninety-seven percent of us don't have, right? Um, I don't know how. I don't know. Again, I don't know the answer to that question. It's probably. Um, I think it's education. I, I think being able to provide a very sound educational system, right, and access to high-quality education, I think will result in you know, probably the, the number of people being able to drastically change their lives. Um, I, I think that's the way to go. But then I, w- I would say that maybe some people are okay. This is why I, I think inequality, we're always going to have inequality. I, I don't think it's a problem that that's going to be solved. Um, but, you know, I think some people just subjectively value things differently, right? Um, it's not that I think, I, I, I think that's the way it is. Um, you know, so some, someone might, you know, subjectively value, you know, a very high, you know, six figure salary more than someone else. Right. Whereas the other person would rather, you know, spend time with family, uh, spend time, you know, fishing or, you know, or doing some other type of hobby. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know if it's fair, right. For that person who values, um, leisure more than the other person, um, for that person to say that, you know, the game is rigged against them, right? Where, you know, they, 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 they haven't put in the same amount of effort, right? Same amount of, you know, of, of time um, to go ahead and pursue, you know, that high earning salary, right? Um, so I, I don't know, like, there, there's definitely inequality. And I don't know, again, I... I I don't know how it's solved. I think that education, I think, would uh, be able to alleviate that the most. And I, I think that, you know, I guess maybe we, you know, as individuals, right, have a responsibility to go ahead and extend a helping hand, right, to those who do want to drastically improve their lives. And I think we see this already, right? You, you have, you know, these very successful entrepreneurs that go out and start investing um, in, you know, startups, they, they donate money to, you know, um, you know, universities to set up, you know, endowments for scholarships and whatnot. So I think we already see this. Um, I don't think those individuals are doing it for, you know, for tax breaks. Um, I I think they generally care about, you know, promoting entrepreneurial, um, you know, endeavors and promoting education. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know if, if the game, you know, saying that, you know, the so-called game is, is fair or unfair. I I mean, I would say that, you know, the game is probably life. And um, I think as we all know, life is, is not fair um, just by default. Right. I mean, some of us are born um, in developed nations, right. Some people are not born in, you know, nations like, you know, the United States, um, you know, China, so on. Some are born in, you know, these, you know, poverty stricken, um, you know, countries, right. in Latin America or, or Africa. Uh, so I, I think, you know, life is not fair, but 
hopefully the, you know, everybody, I guess, takes the high road and, and does what they can to, you know, better themselves and better those around them. And I think on net will, will probably benefit from that. Um, you know, I think, I think your point, one, one point that you make there, I really like is that there is a subjective difference in what people value. And that will produce difference in outcomes, right? I remember watching an interview with some aspiring entrepreneur who was just talking about what he expects from employees versus what he expects from himself. Um, And he recognizes that he doesn't expect his employees to work as hard as him because A, they don't stand to benefit nearly as much as him. And B, like he recognizes that he's insane, that what he wants is, is a little bit crazy. Uh, and he loves being that crazy person. Like he very much embodies that that crazy set of values. But like there is absolutely a trade-off in the things that he is going, the kind of life he's going to have as a result of his sort of subjective values. Yeah, of course. And like Elon Musk is the perfect example, right? I mean, there's a reason why he's one of the richest men in the world. And, you know, he sleeps notoriously on you know the floors of his factories, right? And um, he has a crazy lifestyle where he's working, you know, 20, 22 hours a day or whatever the case may be. Um, and, you know, there's a reason why I am not, um, you know, in the position of Elon Musk. First off, I'm not that I'm not as smart as him. But second, yeah, I, I value, I guess, you know, time off, right, to watch, you know, TV or, you know, or, or go out or whatever more than he does where, you know, he he wants to work each and every day, you know. 16 plus hours. And, um, and again, like his incentives are, are, are different, you know, I mean, he stands to gain a lot more, but he's taking a lot more risk. Um, right. And he's, um, he's making a lot more sacrifices, um, you know, than, than like myself, for instance, and, you know, maybe some of his employees that, um, again, are, are, are working, you know, long hours, you know, but not necessarily, you know, Elon Musk hours. Michael, I appreciate our conversation today. Um, I love to wrap things up with a kind of a recommendation, something that's sort of either come to mind in the course of a conversation or something that you just think is like good reading or good watching. Um, and uh, uh, it could be a book or like a television show or like something to just go out and do. Um, and uh, invite you to share something that if there's somebody, a listener, who's like either learning more about your perspective or just uh, hearing a recommendation from you. Yeah, I would say um, I would probably just recommend, um, here, let me see. Oh, I, I have one for, for the listener. So, so this actually, you know, made a big difference in how I view things. Um, I would encourage the listener to go ahead and pick three books, right? All on macroeconomics, um, but from the three different schools of economic thought, right? So I would say, read a book by a fellow Keynesian economist, right? Read a book from maybe... Um, from Milton Friedman, right, from the Chicago School of Thought, and then go out and read a book from an economist that is part of the Austrian School of Thought, right? So there's there's several. I would probably say um, Dr. Robert Murphy from the Austrian School of Thought, read Free to Choose from Milton Friedman, um, and then pick any book by, um, you know, maybe like Paul Krugman is a good, um, you know, Keynesian neoclassical economist. Um, and so... I would read those three, you know, those three books. And then, um, I guess, you know, formulate your own opinions, um, as to, you know, I guess how government taxes, um, 
you know, their respective citizens and, you know, every, every single, you know, other, you know, sort of macroeconomic, um, you, you know, I guess, um, topic or concept. Um, but yeah, I think that that's interesting because I did that myself. And then, you know, you start to, I guess, first off, create a better, um, mental framework as to how you make decisions, um, not only in business, but in, 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 you know, in life, right. When it comes to, you know, personal finances. Um, but I think, you know, today we all, we're only teaching like one side of the story, right. I think it's important for everyone to go out, educate them to the fullest extent possible, um, and, and make their own, um, you know, make their own opinions or come to their own conclusions. Thanks for the recommendation. Um, Today, I'm going to go with a, a book that I recently started um, called Inadequate Equilibria, which is uh, by a, I believe he's a computer scientist named Eliza Yukowski. Um, and he's talking about how systems, bureaucracies, um, get stuck in states where they suck for a long time. Like, um, like if we're talking about this tax code, like what is the balance of incentives that has produced this um, this sort of result, this suboptimal result, this inadequate result, um, and why can't why is it so difficult to move? So it's a it's a book that's sort of like a high level kind of approach to sort of thinking about institutional kind of gridlock. Um, and uh, I've been really enjoying it so far. I've just begun it, but uh, it's it's uh, it's already changed my thinking a bit. Incredible! I just I just wrote that down on my. Uh my to-do uh to-do list michael thank you so much for uh for coming on today i really appreciated this conversation uh i learned a lot all right likewise brian pleasure talking to you